0: It gets very, like, stoner logic if you think about it too hard, actually. Like, all these, like, (laughs) meal rituals that you, like, are like, but why do we even do that, man? You know?
1: Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write.
2: I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. This is Writers Who Don't Write. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. And I know it's rough to lead off with this, but I want to bring you guys up to speed as quickly as possible. We've been thinking about a name change.
1: Kyle has been thinking about a name change and then somebody mentioned it to me. So I started (laughs) recently thinking about a name change.
2: Well, no, listen, there's, there's a point where you're writing and you're getting feedback on stuff and your tendency is to ignore everything that someone says that's negative about the thing because, you know, you're Shakespeare. You're the best that's ever been. But there starts you're not, to...
1: You're not Shakespeare, man.
2: <laughs> no, I know this now, <laughs> but I didn't when I was starting out. But there reaches a point in the feedback process where, where people say the same thing so many times. It hits critical mass and you have to stop discounting it. And that has now happened with the name of the podcast. I've been told by just the right number of people that the name makes no sense and doesn't actually talk about what the show is about. So I thought, why not involve our listeners, the people who have been here since day one, the day one fans who are out there, in trying to come up with a better name for the show.
1: Keep in mind that five minutes ago, I didn't know we were doing this. Um, it's,
2: it's a repeal <laughs> and replace. It's not a yeah. repeal without any sort of uh, solution, as is popular these days. We're looking for a replacement. So if you've got ideas, we want you to email us.
1: Yeah, and it's www.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm actually super excited. Even if you don't have a name change idea, email us anyway. You know, send it to www.podcast at uh, We really just want to hear from you guys. Um, but moving on to today's show, who do we got on the show today, Jeff? Well, before we do that, I just want to remind everybody, if you didn't listen to the last episode with Phil Cly, that we are now a bi weekly show. Uh, but this week we have Margaret Eby on the show.
2: And Margaret Eby is near and dear to my heart because she currently writes for a website called Extra Crispy, which if you didn't know, is focused on breakfast and the strange culture that we really don't talk about and often don't think about because it's so ingrained in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, it's super weird. Uh, When she first told us that that was kind of the theme of, of Extra Crispy, I was I was taken aback. um, And then she got into it. And you heard like a very small snippet of that. Like, we've talked about breakfast for 20 minutes. Um, I promise you that it will change the way that you think of, of both this website and the meal that breaks your fast.
2: Uh, But rather than go on and on about it, we're going to let Margaret tell you what it's all about.
1: But before we get there, I want to tell you about uh, our sponsor this week, My Lit Box, which you can find at www.mylitbox.com. M-Y-L-I-T-B-O-X. Uh, My Lit Box is a monthly book subscription box. It celebrates diversity in literature. Each month, you'll receive a box containing a newly released novel as well as one or two quality book-related items to make your reading experience all the more enjoyable. And the good news is that you're a fan of this podcast, you can get 10% off your first box by using the code WWDW upon checkout. Uh, You can find out more about the service at mylipbox.com.
2: Let's get to the show. I'm definitely leaving that in.
1: (laughs) So welcome, Margaret. Hi. Hey. Uh, and and you know you and Kyle were just, I just walked in on you two arguing about uh, the romanticism of New York in the in the sleety winter,
0: right. I mean, I'm of the opinion that you have to, like, hold on to some of that, like, wide-eyed belief in, like, the beauty and sparkle and magic of New York in order to live here among the, like, piles of, like, rats <laughs> eating rats and, like, garbage and whatever post-apocalyptic fire thing that's happening in the MTA. So even though it's a little delusional, I, like, have to entertain it in the back of my head. I'm just over,
2: over the I'm over the nameless purple puddles that never leave and the Um. (laughs) freezing uh just the freezing misery of walking to the subway in the morning when it's this cold out
0: yeah that's not good there there actually should be i think there needs to be a specific word for those kind of puddles that are camouflaged (laughs) as asphalt you know where you like (laughs) think that there's a bottom to them but if you step in them like your entire foot is soaked and your day is ruined and there's like no going back for you you know
2: I think they're transdimensional. I think they go to another place <laughs> where it's just always
1: wet.
0: Just like the upside down of New York. Yes. Where it's just like so, so the, the
1: Stranger Thing puddles of New York?
2: Those puddles yeah. exist in all conditions. It makes no sense. They never <laughs> freeze and they yeah, don't evaporate.
0: Yeah, they're like they're in July with like horrible things floating in them. They're just like to be avoided at all times. It's true.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I. Like what you were saying before, though, about like the the magical like you know piece of it, though. I, I just left New York for a few months. I was out in San Francisco, and I uh, you know the second I got back, I just you, you feel it in you. And anybody who who never lived in New York, you know, I feel bad for for you know him or her because it's uh, it's just such a such an amazing experience that like you really there's a lot of uh, Nobody really does it justice when, they, when they're when they talking about it. What a um,
2: condescending. I don't feel bad for you if you don't live in New York or have never done it. It's, it's I do, terrible. I do. I don't
1: know. I, I think it's something, like, really special. It's beautiful and terrible at the
2: same time, and the best I can say about it is that I can't wait until it's over.
0: Yeah, much like being t- 22, you know? <laughs> it's just, like, all garbage and a little bit of champagne, and you look back at it with stars in your eyes, but at the time, you know... It's terrible
1: yeah well this is you know one thing you'll learn about us quickly if you listen to the show is that we're awful at segues uh so so, you know i I wanted to ask you uh because you you know margaret right now are at extra crispy um which is you know a essentially a food blog um but like it's a food culture blog um which struck me as kind of interesting because uh most of my experience reading your work you've been you know a book critic um so, or at least some kind of like cultural cr- critic, and I mean, food is definitely part of that, but it's not something that you immediately think of when you think of culture writing. Uh, and that led me to think about like all of the different things that I've seen you write—you know, music, books, food, television, culture. Uh, can you kind of like give us like an overview of of your past, and then also like why and how you you came to be a food writer?
0: Uh, sure. So I um. I I think I've always like s- gravitated towards um, both like the very high falutin and the very low falutin um, in terms of the journalism world. I don't know. I I started um, when I was just like out of school. I was a uh, stringer for the New York Post. That was my first job, um, and I was actually like a copy kid, part of their like copy pool, which is this incredibly anachronistic job in which a editor yells copy at you and hands copies of things and you pass out the proofs to the editors every night and you basically wait for them to have like a quadruple homicide and be short staffed and send you out reporting. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and I took the shift from 6 PM to 2 AM cause that's when you were most likely to be sent out. Um, and did a lot of those, like, tabloid stories where I, like, went, there was a python in a laundromat in Queens. Um, I One time, like, Bob Saget was somewhere, so they were like, go, see if Bob Saget will talk to you, and he did, and he was very nice to me. Um, But all those, like, weird, like, tiny, you know, inch-long stories at the bottom of columns um, at the post is where I started um, and so I was a news reporter for a while I worked for the post and the daily news as my kind of full-time gigs and at the same time, I was just kind of always like writing about books wherever I could find a place that would let me write about books. Um, I did a lot of writing for the Paris Review Daily, who were incredibly wonderful to me and let me write about like ghost stories from Alabama and going to Eudora Welty's house. Um, and then uh, from the Daily News, I moved to Brooklyn Magazine and what used to be the L Magazine, Rest in. Paper, rest in peace um, um, R- rest I, in piles right rest in piles though sometimes if you walk around brooklyn you can still find those like orange kiosks where they used to give out free the l magazines and they like sort of break my heart um you know
1: you know what a cool story would be is is what's in those kiosks now
0: horrors just <laughs> really bad things i'm sure <laughs> like, some sort no, of puddle yeah, exactly. Like, there's no delight to be had if you open, a like, a kiosk. You're like, oh, it's a rat family living there. How appropriate. <laughs>
1: if if we were a more popular podcast than we are, we would just be getting, like, you know, people sending us pictures of empty kiosks all over Twitter.
0: Man, I, there's something about a haunted kiosk, though. Someone should do a roundup. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I think that someone is you.
0: Yeah, probably. It's me. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> I,
1: I mean, maybe maybe one of us, but... Uh, I mean, you're clearly the better writer in the in the group.
0: So. Well, I I know where the kiosks are more to the <laughs> <same thing>. um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I so I worked there as an associate editor, doing culture stuff, doing weird Brooklyn stories. Um, they were they were like very good about just kind of uh, letting me like write about I don't know Elvis impersonators and like whatever odd things were happening around Brooklyn, um, that day. And I also got to write a lot about books there. Um, at the daily news, I had like, uh, taken over the reins of their like book blog, um, as an editor, kind of as a side gig while I was a reporter, which was an insane thing to do because like, didn't pay me any extra money and did add like, like another half to my workload, but it was really great. And I got to like, work with a lot of people and, you know, avalanches of books to read and write about all the time. Um, So that was great. And I continued that a little bit at Brooklyn. um, And then I left. I've Sorry, I have so many jobs. So many jobs, (laughs) y'all. From Brooklyn, I went to Hello Giggles as a features editor. And then I landed at Extra Crispy, um, basically because uh, Hello Giggles got sold to Time Inc., And the bosses that I loved um, were, they left and I was sort of poking around Time Inc. And they had this like opportunity for a culture editor at a new breakfast website, which at first I was like, that is impossibly niche. There's no way anyone will do that. Like, that's definitely not something I want to do. And the more I thought about it, I was like, no, like breakfast is really a weird meal. Like it's a weird meal that no one talks about how intimate it is and how like unfriendly a breakfast can be and like how many weird proclivities there are around breakfast. Um, and I so I, I like uh, uh, talked to the editorial director of this wing of Time Inc um, who is, her name is Meredith Turrets and she used to be the book editor at Bustle and she's wonderful. Um, and I talked to her about the position and the more I talked to her, the more I realized that I could like turn this into this, um, cool spot on the internet where food and culture writing kind of came together in a way that I hadn't seen them, but I really wanted to see them because I, I, you have this sense in food writing that it's, it's like very rarefied. Like it's all savoir and and food and wine they do excellent things but I always found them like extremely intimidating like I was never they're aspirational kind of glossy media it wasn't ever talking about the way people actually interact and eat and like the weird social conundrums and cultural can you, things
1: can you give and, us a couple examples of what you're talking about because that's fascinating to me and I've, and you're right I up until this moment have never thought about it that way
0: Sure. I mean, some of the pieces that I'm like proudest of publishing and editing up on um, Extra Crispy, I think, are good examples of that. Um, We had the writer John Birdsall, who is just brilliant, um, did a piece for us on an orange juice ban of the uh, basically the queer population of Florida. Um, and then subsequently, like, um, across the United States, banned orange juice after the homophobic comments of the Tropicana spokesman, Anita Bryant. And mm. so orange juice, right, it's like a component of the breakfast table. And so the, ele- you know, the angle there isn't direct, like 10 ways to make French toast, but it completely fit into this ethos of, like, the way that, we talk about food and the way that like you know, food and drinks like inform a cultural conversation in ways that you aren't necessarily explicitly aware of. Um I just had the um, Miranda Popke, who did like an incredible job, uh, did a piece about why we care so much about Starbucks cups. Um <laughs> because people (laughs) flip out about starbucks cups right every time the design gets changed um you know there was that whole protest where everyone was like write trump on my cup um or you know even during during like ferguson um there was that whole like initiative starbucks had where they were like our baristas will talk to you about race. And it's like, why are we making baristas who are already extremely busy dealing with, like, you know, why are they the people responsible for ushering us through this, like, this incredibly thorny conversation? Um, And she did a really good job uh, just kind of untangling the way that Starbucks cups can never really have one message because they mean something to so many different people. Like, they either mean, like, you're very, like, you know snobby or highfalutin maybe or like maybe someone else uses a starbucks cup and they're like oh that person is like super basic and they love mocha frappuccinos (laughs) and the lens of your context informs how you see that message so there's no way for there to be like a uniform message of these cups and nonetheless they're this new canvas that people are using for political means um so there's just a couple examples but i think um it, it really afforded me an opportunity to take the idea of food and like, and like, rather than focusing super inwards, um, because I don't know, I never went to culinary school. I don't, I know nothing about like the innards of how to like construct a recipe. Our incredibly excellent, um, food editor, Kat Kinsman, often like, I'll be like, hey, can you make like, jello out of i don't know red bull and she's like not only can you i have and here's a recipe um
1: well it's it's interesting that you you mentioned that because when i was looking at extra crispy which you know i had heard like rumblings of and and seen you know on twitter or something prior to you know this interview but i really didn't do any like really deep reading or or, uh research until you know i knew that you were coming on the show mm -hmm. um but it strikes me that it's interesting that Time Inc. is is releasing this website now after you know the ridiculous success that everybody saw from, you know, for example, the Tasty uh, vertical on BuzzFeed. Sure. Um, and you know, there's a few other examples of of like these food blogs that are just remarkably successful. But I'm just kind of curious how how you know Extra Crispy fits into the model of that.
0: Well, so we're very different. We do our own video work. Um, and we do have, like, some videos that are in the model of, like, a Tasty where they're hands and pans, you know? You just see, the, like, the hands floating above and they're constructing something. Ah, is that the um, name they
2: have for them now? Hands
0: and pans? I, I know. Yeah. The hands and pans. <laughs> insider breakfast lingo. There you go. <laughs>
2: um, I'm in the know now.
0: There you go. Um, I think – so timing, I know, is like, looking – was looking when they launched – Extra Crispy to kind of become more like have their own native digital brands as opposed to like, you know, having People Magazine and like Time, these like big storied um, legacy magazines. They also want to have like sort of like scrappier uh, websites. So Extra Crispy was sort of like, it's sort of like having a startup, but within the structure of a giant media company so we have like a lot of the agility and um and like ability to experiment that you would for a much smaller company but you have like the structural support of timing which is nice because it means like you don't have to worry where money is coming from or like where funding is um in terms of like the landscape I don't know. I mean, I say this with, like, deep affection because I really like everyone I work with. I think we're, like, all weirdos. Like, none of us are. Like, we're all, like, wonderful weirdos invested in our own projects. So, like, the aesthetic is not, you know, PBS so much as it is Adult Swim. Um, So sometimes, like... (laughs) things spiral into like very niche weird places um which is very fun to be a part of um but I think I think instead of being like you know a tasty or or someplace like that that's like a pretty instructional space like Mm -hmm. the idea is to harness that energy and like talk about like the the like morning culture um aspect of it um and like the the way that people like really interact with food and and also, like, what they actually would like to know about food. I mean, we ran a, like this is a silly example, but like, we have this great staff writer named Maxine who did an explainer about like nipple bacon, like why sometimes when you get a bacon it has a pig nipple on it. And she's like, yeah, like, this is what happens. And it's like, I I had never thought about it, but then I was like, right, that that has to happen sometimes, you know? Um, Yeah, there's, there's
1: something special listening to a reporter talk about their own outlet, uh, you know, with their (laughs) own insider knowledge, something you don't really, you know, pick up otherwise. (laughs)
2: Like hearing the way that you describe, (laughs) hearing the way that you describe some of the social mores around breakfast. I mean, you just, you've sparked some thoughts I've never had before about how weird a concept breakfast is in general.
0: Oh, it's so weird, right? Like, it seemed, it's really arbitrary, actually. Um, like, it means, like, to break your fast, right? Yeah. So so it doesn't have to be in the morning or, like, have these... And also having, like, specific foods about breakfast is a really Western American thing. Like, that's not true for all these different... Um, We had, like, an essay who wrote a... A person who wrote an essay about... She grew up and she's from Korea and they would have like leftover dinner food for breakfast. And it was of course a point of contention. Cause when you're a little kid, you're just like, no, give me the weird sugary waffle thing. <laughs> they're like, why this is dumb. Like you don't need to be eating dessert for your morning meal, but yeah, like breakfast is an odd concept. It's like, it gets very like stoner logic. If you think about it too hard, actually like all these like, <laughs> like meal rituals that you like, are like but why do we even do that man you know
2: right it's like I'd like like to start my day off in a healthy way so give me the cakes covered in sugar
0: yeah yeah (laughs) what who decided that that was a good idea or like cereal is really (laughs) weird if you think about it too long like why do we want like dehydrated flake things but we're like no it's fine because now they're in milk and is that a kind of soup like it could be a kind of soup you know how about some iron shavings
1: on top of that you know for for health what's the uh what's the cold cold tomato soup gaspacho yes yeah it's kind of like that just without the tomato soup but um well so okay so we we see you know if you go to your twitter feed like you're doing a lot of ridiculous things that look like a lot of fun (laughs) like you, you guys went and like searched for like a dumpster with like you know, old fortune cookies that nobody used. Oh, um,
0: that was a personal project.
1: That was not. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that. I thought that was for an article.
0: <laughs> oh uh, wow! I should actually write an article. No, that was actually just like a personal quest I had in downtown Los Angeles because I saw like a weird thing on the internet about it, and then a friend, a group of my friends, like directed me to the dumption the dumpster of uh, rejected fortune cookies in downtown L.A. Where see, you can go. That,
1: that needs to be something you write about. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess my question is like, how are you able to balance like the kind of research that you have to do and, you know, actually writing these things, um, these articles, because I mean, you already have explained so many like weird, like things that you, you need to, <laughs> like, if you're going to write about nipple bacon, you have to go and find nipple bacon.
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, luckily for me, you know, I'm, I am, function as an editor in like a sort of true way um in the way that like every place the word editor could mean either someone who chases down contracts or someone who just like pumps out 10 articles a day like i i really do get to like commission things and edit them so a lot of the times it's like extremely fun to just be like i have this weird idea and i know a writer who i can like have chase down this like weird thing and see if it's good and then they can write about it (laughs) um so a lot of it is delegating which is the boring true thing but sometimes there are things that I like I have a personal passion project this is sort of a spoiler but not really um about uh, a friend of mine is getting married but she doesn't like cake so she's like why can't we just have a giant bagel as a cake and I was like yes why can't you so i've been working on it's a shame i can't
2: propose to her
0: (laughs) (laughs) she is the best um but uh but like so i've been working with like a person who knows how to make bagels to see like if we can make like a really large bagel with like smaller concentric bagels like in as like a tier and then like frost it with cream cheese
1: will that Um, bagel still be good for like the one and five year anniversary though
0: uh will it even be good the first time? <laughs> I don't know. How like, long will
2: it's... that cream cheese hold out?
0: Yeah, I don't know if it'll be extremely gross but like super impressive looking. Um <laughs> I don't know. But but it's like always just like a balance of like trying to you know, like cause I have to a lot like time for actual responsibilities like editing and writing versus maybe sometimes i get to like take a couple hours and i'm like okay here's the thing we're gonna put everything bagel seasoning on absolutely everything around us and see if like it still tastes good um (laughs) which it does like it absolutely does i highly recommend it
1: then you just have to walk around with toothpicks for the rest of your life
0: yeah um, that's the drawback of it it's worth it it's like such a yeah oh
1: everything (laughs) bagel
0: seasoning tastes great on everything i don't know why no one has like It should be like just an at home spice, is my opinion.
2: So I know, do you think it's called everything because it tastes good on everything or because it's made of everything?
0: See, before I had tried this, I would have said the latter, but now I think it's the former. Like it tastes good on everything. Did they just know? They just do.
1: This is is the stoner logic that you were talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: it
2: is. (laughs) Well, there is actually a connecting thread uh, in the discussion we were just having. I wanted to talk a little bit about how your voice has developed as you've moved from place to place. Um, Mm -hmm. Because having read a little bit of South Torch Home, it's... I feel like the voice difference is distinct between that and the things you write for Eater and even some of the criticism you've written on uh, earlier on in your career. So can you talk a little bit about the development of your voice and how you sort of switch gears from writing for a breakfast website versus writing about uh, your travels through the South, for instance?
0: Sure. Um, I think, um, I I think I've always been trying to do, Um, the way that I've structured my career perhaps like foolishly is that I've always been working on something longer and slower beneath the service while like paying my bills, doing something very quick like writing for the internet, writing for a tabloid, like being invested in like doing, you know, the kind of things where like you send in your assignment and like it will be published probably within that month versus the book, which like, took me about two years um or yeah I about it was like two and a half years from it being sold to it being published so the metabolism of it was much slower um I think often starting out like when you're writing and you're pitching and you're writing for the internet your voice is like writing for other like if you You have, like, a little bit of your inherent voice writing, I think, no matter what you do. But, like, the outlet really determines what your voice is, right? So Mm -hmm. you wouldn't write the same piece in the same style for the New York Times and Entertainment Weekly. Or, you know, like, if someone asks you to, like, recap a television show, that's different than, you know, them asking you to go report on, like, a city council meeting. Um, So I pretty early on just out of necessity, just out of, like, hustling really hard to try and feed myself. I, like, had to be adept at, like, learning how to imitate these different house styles as best I could. Or at least, like, fitting my voice into these, like, different containers. Mm. Um, Whereas the book, I really got to kind of, like, be as much... Like, there was no template and no container except for, like, what I wanted to do, which was a little bit terrifying, honestly. Um, But I had an extremely good editor, um, Matt Weiland at Norton, who is a prince. um, Who's a prince who, like, knows exactly, like, when to be like, okay, but just write, like, that maybe, like, right there, like, you need, like, three more pages. Or, like, you should cut these 20 pages. And you're like, uh, you're right um but i think it was helpful for me it's it's helpful for me to always have something that's going on in the background that sort of anchors me that i can sort of sit down and write just like in the way that i would want to describe something to an old friend um mm. or like a new friend i was sort of trying to impress you know <laughs> um versus like the day to day trying to like be a, you know, the when I was at the Daily News, a lot of the things I wrote were, like, um, I would cover, like, award shows and stuff, and we would do a lot of, like, Kim Kardashian goes outside, which is all, like, you know, useful in its own right, and it was incredibly useful to learn how to, like, work that quickly and sort of rephrase things as I went, but it was also, like, such a relief to be able to go back to this project where I was like, no, no one... Like, is gonna see this for a while, so I can just sort of make this, like, shape it kind of on a slower level. And not, and I think also crucially, when you're writing for the internet, you're always shaped immediately by the feedback that you get, right? Mm-hmm. You put it on Twitter, or you like get comments, and like people will let you know right away if you like it or don't like it. So when you have like a longer project, it exists in this kind of void where you have no idea if anyone would like it or not like it and that's sort of terrifying but also like really freeing Mm -hmm. um yeah well in the in the book you talk uh
2: the first chapter is about eudora welty and how gardening for her was sort of a grounding experience and you can read that into her writing in the way that she talks about relationships and the way that she describes places um and it what you something you just said the metabolism of longer pieces made me think about that in relation to you Is there something you come back to uh, and maybe it's breakfast, maybe it's writing about food that helps ground your writing process from gig to gig as you metabolize these longer pieces, as you write shorter things for the internet?
0: Um, I think that the thing that I've always been really deeply interested in and is sort of this like amorphous thing is writing about place and like why people live where they live and what, Makes a place distinct from other places, not just geographically but culturally. Um, and so, I think a lot of the writing that I've done that I care about is about talking about the the way that um, I was I was like talk about the the way that a place is is a mutually agreed upon thing, not just because that's how it is in physical space, but that's how it is in our collective imaginations, right? Mm-hmm. The, um, So we were just talking about New York and the way it is in our collective imaginations. And in some people's imaginations, it's like, you know, this great like Big Apple and like full of glamour. And to people who live here, you're like, this is a rat palace full of (laughs) terrors and traps. And like both of them are equally true. Neither of them are false. The collections of our lived experience is what makes up the fabric of a place. and I think, you know, even when I talk about something as like as like silly as like or, you know, like I did a piece like a long time ago about like monster truck rallies um, and, and like monster truck rallies are it's always like about examining the way that things are and like physical space as you perceive them versus how other people perceive them, because there's just it's like this um, it's always like your animal brain like hitting up against like the limits of your human body because there's no way you can tell what other people know about these things. And the only way you can do it is, is to surmise by like collecting all the information you can and like synthesizing it in this really specific way. So um, though I am like definitely no Eudora Welty, um, I feel like we have similar impulses in that coming back to like place and like Maybe, you know, she always came back to one specific place. And for me, too, I, I tend to, like, gravitate towards where I grew up because I just, like, never really figured out the place that I grew up. But I, like, keep coming at it from different angles through the way that different people talk about it to see if I can maybe figure it out.
1: Sorry to interrupt this week's episode with Margaret Eby. Her book, South Towards Home, is available wherever books are sold. Uh, We wanted to let you know about My Lit Box, which is a monthly book subscription box that celebrates diversity in literature by delivering a book written by an author of color to your house once a month. Uh, if you pay for the premium model you get one or two quality book related items that show up along with the book Uh, it's a really cool experience these are books that you're going to be reading anyway so you might as well just get them delivered once a month without you even paying attention and the best news if you're a fan of this podcast you can get 10 percent off your first box by using the code wwdw upon checkout find out more at mylitbox.com now let's get back to the show What, what do you mean you you keep coming back to, to like where you grew up and how? Um you know, I, I've been fascinated forever with the book uh, You Can't Go Home Again where mm-hmm. I, God, I always screw it's Tobias Wolf, right? Uh um, Thomas Wolf. Thomas Wolf. <laughs> See that that's the mistake I always make. <laughs> no. I always screw it up. Who's separate uh,
0: from Tom Wolfe yes. of of uh, White Suits fame? No, it's like
1: a <laughs> uh well, I mean, the the whole idea of the book, and I've, I've talked about it on the podcast before, is that, you know, it's fiction, but this guy writes about, you know, the town he grew up in, and then he goes back, and he's ostracized. Um, so that's not what you meant, is it?
0: It's a little bit, like, I mean, I don't feel ostracized from the place that I grew up, but, like, in the way that you can't go home again, because the place that you're talking about, like, you, of course, can go back to your hometown again, but you can't ever go back to the original setting and the original feelings you had at that home because, like, you, you can't return to time, like, circumstances. Um, it, it is a little bit about that. And, like, I think a lot of these, like, um, the people, like, especially writing in my book, they wrote about the South, but almost none of them, like, felt like they were a part of it at the time, even though now, retrospectively, all of those people are deeply like coded as Southern, like Faulkner and, and wealthy and maybe a little bit less um, someone in the case of like Richard Wright, who had to like actually like flee the South in order to get any work done because of how like brutal it was. Um, but I think, you know, none of, I think none of these writers would have thought of themselves as natural Southerners, which is funny because like, now, absolutely, you would think of, like, Flattery O'Connor when you think about the South. Um, and it's because I think it's hard to feel like a part of a place at the time that you're there. Um, and almost it's easier to write about a place when you're not living there um, or if you're apart from it or you think of yourself as an outsider to it in some way.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, because you, you're you in Brooklyn right now, right?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my I home.
1: mean, I mean, it just sounds like you're – it's funny that you say that it's it's easier to write about or talk about a place when you're not there because, I mean, you've just done such, like, a masterful job of talking about Brooklyn. Um, and I know that, you know, one thing doesn't disqualify the other, but uh, – or about New York anyway.
0: But uh, Well, thank you. I will take – I'll take the compliment, but I feel like it's also just, like, New York I – don't, I don't know. New York Seals is, like, one of those slippery places to write about because even if you – like you're the New York you describe is never going to be everyone's New York and if it's not there in New York sometimes you get criticized for it if that makes sense?
2: <laughs> yeah. Criticized for describing New York never.
0: Never. 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 That never happens.
2: <laughs> if you live here you can talk about how terrible it is but if anybody else says it then that's Biden's like, words.
0: Hey, so. step off. Go back to Oakland. Like enjoy your <laughs> Jersey. Property. Yeah. Enjoy your avocados that are cheap, you yeah, know. have like... your
2: pizza with your fork and your knife and get out of my lawn. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, it's amazing like how how like defensive people get of I mean it's the whole classic thing where like um do you remember in the in the like debates when Ted Cruz uh, I forget what he said. It was like some he was just like New York values and instantly everyone was like, "All right, buddy, like get out of here." Like the Daily News was like Yeah. Was, like, flipping him off it was like a glorious (laughs) glorious thing to behold new that brings new
2: yorkers together like criticism of new york
0: (laughs) it's true it is actually true it's like kind of the currency of living here i tried i tried to explain this to someone on the west coast because of a friend of mine who who was always telling her about like killing rats in his apartment and like horrors. And she was like, you should just move. I was like, you don't understand. Like, this is our way of communicating. Like if he wanted to move, he could move. But this like <laughs> the, the like fabric of our being is complaint, you know, like yeah. mutual <laughs> complaints. <laughs> well, so you talk about
2: uh, the, the place that you're from, uh, or at least the place that you grew up, which is Alabama. What, how would you describe Alabama in the same terms that you describe New York, what is inseparable from where you grew up?
0: So for me I I growing up um, in Alabama, like it's one of those things that I didn't realize that I mean like everything growing up, you don't realize that it's an unusual thing or something that maybe not everyone has experienced until you like remove yourself from that setting. So for me, You know, I moved to New York for college. And then when I would tell people where I was from, they were just they were like slack jawed, like more so than anyone who was like, oh, I moved here from Venezuela. They're like, oh, I hear it's nice there. I was like from Alabama. They're like, how? How did you get here? I was like, (laughs) airplane, (laughs) normal ways, Um, because there's so many. I feel like uh, you to some extent, I think when I was growing up, I was aware of the assumptions of like. What it's like to live and grow up in the South, but you don't really face the weight of those until you leave, and kind of people expect you to come in on a tractor or um, or be like horribly racist to them or or something. Um, and and you know, the South is like a fraught, fraught place, and there are a lot of things that are truly like reprehensible about its political history and like continue to be Um, there's the there's kind of a thing that I have always had trouble like truly describing is the way the weight of that kind of past um, like particularly the civil rights movement and the way that people think about it as like never it you know it it's not over and like has never been um, in the way that I think when I moved up here, people were like, oh, that was that was a bad time for us, but it's over. Like, in Birmingham, uh, growing up, like, you knew people whose parents were part of the Children's March, right? Um, and probably you knew people whose parents were, like, part of, if not, like, exactly the Klan, certainly, like, something that, like, really vigorously opposed the civil rights movement. And both of those people, like, everyone like still existed with all this mixing together um, all the time. And And even like I grew up in Alabama and neither of my parents are from Alabama. I remember just like time and again, trying to come like to terms with this sort of like crushing guilt weight of history, which is, you know, to some extent just like white guilt, but to other extent you like really feel implicated in a way that maybe you would, I mean, and I don't know, because I've only had the experience I did, but like maybe if you're in Boston, even though Boston also has like a fair amount of its own past to contend with, maybe you wouldn't wouldn't have had the same thing to deal with because for example, you wouldn't pass the park every day where there were like fire hoses and police dogs mowing down like little black children. It's it's like a different it's like a feeling um, that's it's a it's a difficult one to like communicate because like you you want to be like, yes, bad things. But also there are good things (laughs) like people make good food. I don't know. People are nice to me. Um, We we
1: had we had a similar conversation with Evan Ratliff uh, of the long form podcast and atavist where he basically said that like the rumors you know, at his Thanksgiving table where that he had like a grandfather who was in the KKK. uh, And he's from Georgia, I believe. Um, And I mean, it's, it's, he said it was just like part of the fabric of the life that he'd always grown up in. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, his, his family, he always looked at as as great people, but you know, you have to contend with the fact that like very recently, like they may not have been. um, And it's just like kind of hard to justify Like, you know, either side of that argument.
0: Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's a difficult thing. And I think it's also, um, to, some ex- to some extent, it, it's just like an easy thing, right? It's not easy, but it's like this, a, not a new conundrum of like having to deal with the complications of humans who, you know, might be like extremely nice to you and like sit at the same dinner table with you, but might ha- be part of some really outrageously, like, upsetting and, like, violent incidents um, in, like, the past, for example, or, like, just disagree with you totally politically or, you know, um, reconciling those things is, um, I guess it's just, like, an ongoing process because it's easier just to be, like, the racists are over there. We don't have to worry about them. (laughs) Um, But obviously, current political events... I indicate that no such luck they are everywhere like and also it's not even useful to categorize it like as a kind of person it's like a kind of action that like people are capable of so mm. um so that was well, a very long answer <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's
2: a good one as as something that you come back to that helps guide the process that you go through when you write about things i think that's uh that's a it's hard to describe in the way that it affects your process, I'm sure, because yours it sounds like you're still working through it and what it means.
0: Right. I think so. And I think it was useful. It's useful to confront and I think it's important to confront and like recognize, but it's, um, but it's, yeah, it's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to be a part of the fabric of a place that like anchors, uh, you but I guess all places are difficult like there's no like one place that's just like completely free of any like any complication or bad feeling or having to deal with like complicated um poisonous parts um the great writer Diane McCorder actually wrote this like incredible Um, long history of the of Birmingham civil rights and she is from around the same place that I grew up and her her piece which was like this meticulously researched book all about the civil rights movement um, ended up implicating a lot of people who she like went to my same high school um, and I remember it being like a huge social deal when she dropped this book which I if I recall correctly one several really big prizes it's a just like really well done book but like people were not pleased with her about like airing a lot of dirty laundry um like specifically there were like some country club members who she had like (laughs) she like tied to be like opposing the civil rights movement um and it it's like that that stuff is very near the surface still and Mm -hmm. i think she she no longer she is working on another book, but I believe she lives in Boston now or or teaches at Harvard. But for I remember like when I heard about that, I was like, oh right. Like this is this is what it will be like to like try and write about this place. Like it will it will like not always go (laughs) very well if you want to like speak truthfully about it.
1: Well you you I mean you mentioned that like it's nice to like confront some of these issues in your writing. And you actually just recently published a piece uh, called Tacky in Midnight Breakfast, which, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're in a different way. You were kind of confronting, like, some of the culture that you grew up in. Um, can you talk about it for a little bit?
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, Tacky. Um, so, right, Tacky was about this culture in a different way. And it was more of, like, the culture of the way that, people, and specifically women, are supposed to present themselves, um, like, uh, there's, and the ways in which there are rules of behavior that are, like, unwritten, um, and basically, like, if you break, like, tacky is a word that is used to, like, police people who break those rules, so, um, you know like acting tacky or like acting ugly um could mean like you unwittingly like forgot to bring like the shrimp cocktail or something to the party and everyone was expecting you to bring the shrimp cocktail but like no one like actually explicitly told you to do that so or it's you know when I'm talking about it a lot of it um is is about um like the way people dress um And specifically, I am someone who likes things that are like flashy and loud and like generally like late Elvis, you know, like (laughs) like very, very like bad taste, like huge necklaces and huge earrings and like weird crowns and like feathers. Like I love New Orleans. Like I love going I love very literal things like I have a skirt with like fried eggs printed on it. It's just like very on the nose for someone who works as like a breakfast website and I wear it (laughs) all the time. Um, and I think the, the essay, what I was trying to get at is the way that, um, we discourage certain modes of dress and certain behaviors, especially, um, especially like for women who don't fit in one really specific model, which is thin, like white, like blonde, um, willowy I don't know there's there's just like the the type that's on every Neutrogena commercial basically um and though I like am am very privileged in many respects I am like white and cis and straight I am like have always been of a larger size than that model in which case you are super like super encouraged to wear like a wall of like black fabric and not stick out and like hope that eventually you can eat enough cottage cheese to like become someone willowy enough to wear spaghetti straps um which is something i think i thought i would eventually accomplish a lot in my 20s and then realize that like it is foolish not to just wear things you like to wear at all times um so in conclusion i'm like a like a terror to see around the office we often have like um the food editor Kat and I sometimes have like theme days, and we're like tiki and we wear like tiki dresses. um, Because I'm also lucky enough to work in an office where they don't mind if I wear ridiculous garb. Um, So that's, that's a lot what tacky was about.
2: That sounds like it's, it's a a thread in the same larger yarn. Are yarns made of threads or are yarns (laughs) just really big threads themselves? I don't know. Uh, But it sounds like it's in that same vein where it's something – is that something that was sort of illuminated to you when you moved to a place like New York where people wear whatever they want and aren't chastised for standing out?
0: Sort of. But New York does chastise you in different ways. I mean, like, no one's – I mean, sure, not New York proper. Like, on the subway, no one cares. But I think if you run in certain social circles in New York, it's, like, clear which – modes of dress and behaviors are favored um you know it it's not it's never like explicit it it is something that like moving to new york helps because i think there's like a community like so many weirdos from small towns moved to new york that there's like an implicit <laughs> there's an implicit support club there always yeah. um so you can wear like whatever you want and someone will be like fantastic I also have like an array of like tiki wear and you're like great of course you (laughs) did like New York is wonderful but I think a lot of it just had to do with like time and like making like to myself explicit the things that were always implicit in the way that I was like well why am I feeling like I can't wear this and I'm like because of the like following ideas that are propagated about like women, <laughs> and and it was just like a slow kind of process of of like discovering perhaps things that were like maybe obvious to other people, um. But I was just like, right, okay, that's why I feel this way. And then once you like f- figure out that like, you know, maybe you you go to like a like a book reading or a book party, and everyone there is wearing black or like chic florals or like cold shoulder tops and you and and maybe a degree of that is like gaining some confidence in my work and like as well as in myself and you know turning like being in my 30s which are generally a time of more peace and prosperity let's hope um <laughs> But I do think some of that was just being like you know what if I go to the like party and I'm wearing this like insane flounce outfit and I like do it with like and don't comment on it at all no one's gonna care and they are gonna think it's awesome as opposed to like my insecurity voice being like they'll think you're like some rube who is like airlifted here from the middle of like nowhere Um, so maybe they are part of the same thing (laughs) actually. (laughs) (laughs)
1: man i'm learning i'm Uh, learning so much right now about just like so many fashion mistakes that i've made in the past but but
0: (laughs) there's no such thing as a fashion mistake this is like this is the whole thing like there's no way to mistake your fashion like do you that that i feel like have you have either of you read um carl wilson's book about celine dion no oh I, i have not it is incredible um it's it's like one of the 33 and a third books um and the subtitle is like a journey to the end of taste
1: (laughs) that's a great (laughs) name
0: it's fantastic and it's just about it's like him setting out to discover why he hates celine dion um he was just like i just really don't like her and it's actually just an exploration of taste and like what good and bad taste means um but, right, like, once you figure out that it's all completely subjective and meaningless and no one can punish you for wearing all leopard print every day if you want, then, like, <laughs> do the thing that makes you happy. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 I misspoke. But, the, you know, kind of what I meant is just, like, uh, you can wear the same outfit. And, you know, I'm from New Hampshire, so I can wear the same outfit in New York and then the same thing in New Hampshire. And, and you're right. You know, it will be suitable for one place and not the other. Um, and, I mean, I do it anyway because I just don't care what people think. But... But you know, I will get comments, and you know, I'll get looks if I wear like something a little flashier in New Hampshire. You know, I'm expected to be like, uh, you know, polo and Timberland and that kind of thing. Correct. Um, and I mean, it, it kind of like does strike a lot of the same chords uh, that you seemed to write about in in tacky. Um. So, um. So thank you for writing that because it, it yeah, <laughs> it, it helped me put it into a, like a little bit of perspective. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, I mean, I'm here to encourage. I'm here to enable everyone to like. Just, just be their tackiest selves. It would be better if people could just like all wear like insane velour jumpsuits and like capes and whatever all where, day. Where, I took what it, are
1: those big blanket pajama things? <laughs> Snuggies. Snuggies. Yeah, oh,
0: yeah, yes. for sure. Yeah, hundred. I took
2: it to mean I took it a little differently, just because I feel like as as a fan of things that have been somewhat ostracized at different points and are now. Part of the greater popular culture like mm-hmm. Star Trek and Star Wars and video games, and I've worn glasses forever and now they're cool. Who would have thought? Totally. Um, I took it, you know, and I don't know if you read it this way, to be uh, sort of an advocation, if that's even a word, for passion. Because I took your, your passion for wearing the things that you actually care about to be the takeaway for me because it was such a struggle against insecurity, and I'm sure everyone goes through the same thing in their 20s, but, like, finding the inner strength to just dive headfirst into the things that you care about, the things that give you joy, even if you're being made fun of for it, or someone's telling you it's stupid or dumb, to partake in, like video games was, for the longest time.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly that's, like, that's a big part of it, too. Um, Because I think also, like, uh, the old, like, narratives of you will say some that you like something and someone will be like, that's stupid. And you're like, Oh no, like that. that <laughs> so rarely happens, right? Like no one's going to like, be, very few people are just like, well, you liking, this is dumb. They'll they're like code it in a different way. And you, and therefore you like internalize it in a way that you wouldn't, if someone was just like, I think video games are dumb. And you're like, well, I think they're awesome and you're dumb and I'm leaving, you know? <laughs>
2: um I wasn't that kind of kid I was they were like video games aren't cool and I was like well I want to be cool
0: (laughs) yeah I don't know I don't play any video games (laughs) no I don't like them anymore um no I think it, it is like about about like being authentic to yourself whatever that means but I think you know that's such that feels like such a trite I feel like I'm always discovering, like, these, like, very trite, like, normal things. Like, I discovered whole milk last year. Like, <laughs> I'm just, like, always columbus like, like... I hadn't ever, I never drank milk. I never had milk my whole life. I thought it was gross. And then I had an iced coffee and I like reached for the wrong milk. And I was like, Oh my God, this tastes wonderful. And my friend was like, did you just discover whole milk?
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, wait, is that yeah. a real thing?
0: Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Absolutely. It tastes stu- so much I'm stu- better.
1: Stu- I'm still stuck on the word Columbus I think that's amazing.
0: Oh, um, I didn't come up with that at all. <laughs>
1: no, I know. I love it. Uh, that's great. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to uh, jump on on uh, like the the time train, but I do want to be respectful of your time. So, um, you know, this is typically the point in the show where we uh, kind of transition into uh, you know the one story that our guest has always kind of struggled to tell. Um, you know, and uh, longtime listeners of the show knows that or know that like this is oftentimes the most exciting piece of the whole show. So. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, in, in it, so, like just, for 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 good reason,
2: you know. Yeah. It's I don't know, man. I was I was willing to see where this whole whole milk thing is
1: going.
0: <laughs> you don't want to hear about like how whole milk tastes, but no, I understand. Well, I'm I'm
1: I'm I'm lactose like... <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant, so I can't I, into... I can't do the milk uh, thing. Oh, fair. Um, but I uh, I mean that said, you did you did tell us a couple of the stories that you wanted to to speak on, and and you know, I'm pretty stoked about them. So, um, so I'll leave it to you.
0: Um, okay, so, right, I feel, I'm not sure how, like, to dramatically reveal, but I, I do. (laughs) There's a story, um, it's, like, I, the kind of story that I, like, usually, like, drop, like, a line of at a cocktail party, if I want to sound, like, super interesting. Um, but my, my, my mom, um, is from Ireland. She grew up in Ireland, um, with two sisters, and she would always, like and um whenever i would go over to visit my grandparents i was i was like always i never really put it together but then one day i like kind of realized that every entertainment piece of entertainment they had in their house was related to nuns um like we would always watch sister act we would watch the sound of music we would watch like the flying nun <laughs> and my my grandparents were very religious like which is not unusual um for, you know, they're Irish Catholic. Um, and um, and it, I, like, remember hearing this in, like, some capacity and, like, finally getting my mom to tell me about it because my grandmother had, had been a nun um, before she was my grandmother. Um, and the story was that she was... There were, like, not that many options um, for women in Ireland... Um, in the fifties, if I, I, you know, if they didn't want to like directly get married. So she was like in training basically to be a novice through her twenties and thirties. And then she met my grandfather in her late thirties. Um, I believe though this like detail might not be totally correct because I need to like actually like do some digging in the family lore, but he, he was like, in some way like she interacted with him in the convent like he wasn't a a, like religious in any he wasn't like um a clergyman but his brother owned a farm or something and so my my grandmother like a nun (laughs) ran away with my grandfather to England and got married and then they came they um had my mom when she was 40 and then two kids after that um and then moved back to the small town in Ireland that she had been a nun in to become, to work as a nurse, um, which was, um, and, and this and I guess the complications of the story and why it's like difficult to talk about is, is the way that like the, the Catholic church had been so much a refuge for like the women of my family, even as it, um, hurt them like I think very very clearly did um case in point that like when they moved back and my my mom and her sisters went to the school that was run by the nuns that used to be the colleagues of my grandmother they were like extremely harsh to her and her sisters and they were they like basically punished them um and like I I my mom would tell stories of like, you know, wrapping knuckles with rosary beads and the kind of like, um, corporal like punishments that were still, um, allowed (laughs) at that time. And, and I think, um, so, so it's a story that I, I know that I should talk about at some point because it's this, like this very like deeply entrenched family lore. And I think it really like, changed the way like the relationship between the church and my family is one that's like very deep-seated and maybe not that uncommon in Ireland. But I also like wanna you know, one of the things I always wanted to write about and haven't like really found a way in yet is like the way that my grandmother must have been this like incredibly independent woman to like get out of the like, you know, she had my mom in nineteen fifty four. So imagining doing that in 1954 Ireland and like leaving the like shelter of this institution and then coming back to like sort of face it every day um, is something that I have been wanting to write about for a while.
1: So is there uh, like a specific reason why you haven't yet or is it just kind of like, you know, it's in you, but you're not ready yet?
0: Um, every time I try, it just like doesn't seem right. Um, yeah, I don't, it's, 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 it's a, it feels like very big thing. And it also, I don't know, it, whenever you bring like religion into something, it gets really messy all of like very quickly. Right. And, and in a weird way, that story is also about a place and mm-hmm. that place is like, like 1950s Athlone, Ireland, which is like the depressing joy division part of Ireland, um, and it feels like something that I haven't quite like got enough of a handle on um, to be able to tell it well enough.
1: It's so funny to me that you say that that religion is the reason that uh, it, it would make things sticky because for me and for a lot of the experience of the writers that we've had on the show in the past, it's usually family that gives that kind of pause.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, it's both. I think yeah. it's <laughs> implicit. Yeah. Um, I think writing when you write about yourself, like when I write about myself in this book, it's not really like it's me, but it's like me in the way like it's it's at a remove and like having and writing something like that where you're like really talking about your family and your roots and your like deepest held beliefs that's a different kind of you that I'm not that used to writing about and it feels very um, hard and scary yeah
2: also well, sure. you you're taking on the role of speaking either through or about your grandparents in a way that you might not have known them too right That's what I would that would be my my hesitation to try and write a story about my grandparents. Um, I can understand why that would be a daunting task in any sense of trying to tackle
0: right. It. And I feel like I would make so many assumptions that are not right. And unfortunately, neither of them are around for me to actually talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. So everything is now, like, filtered through the assumptions of other family members. Um, and mm-hmm. also, it's the kind of thing where, like, it's a good gossip item within the family. But it in, in the same way that, like, New Yorkers get angry <laughs> if you, like, talk about New York in any way that isn't, like, beautiful, that... Um, you know, it's, it's obviously a sensitive thing when you're like talking about something that is like something that it's fine to tell people in person, but maybe not to like write about to the world um, and have like passed <laughs> around and read by a lot of strangers.
2: I imagine it would also be difficult not to lionize uh, your grandmother for what is maybe the boldest move in Irish Catholic history to run away from the convent and then to go back to that same town with the man you ran away with Yeah,
0: I mean, it seems super badass, but also
2: it's so badass.
0: But yeah, it's hard to but also, you know, she was a person and I knew her and she was a like lovely grandmother. I didn't she died when I was 13. Um but like, mm. right, it's I think trying to figure out who someone is like through stories of them and particularly through those stories of their like biggest moves is a weird way of getting to know someone. Like I don't think you like the fabric of their everyday life is more important than not more important, but like as relevant as like the biggest decision they ever made, you know?
2: That has to be the hardest part about writing historical things though right because you can only ever tell the story at a distance and you only have as much as the time allows you you know as the records of that time allow so especially if you're if your grandmother wasn't uh you know a political or person who took daily notes about what she did and where she went and who she met with. It's, it's very different. Right. It's gotta be very difficult to try and reconstruct her life. Right. You
0: know? And even if she did take daily notes, like she only took the notes of like the things that she wanted to record or if mm. she, you know, she didn't, but like, but even that kind of like specific diary keeping is only useful to a certain extent because like you probably have a lot of questions that aren't things that she would like write down or, any historical figure would write down, you know,
1: I'm going to say something that I haven't like, you know, said to any of our guests in the past, but uh, for as awesome as a story as that is, I think that, you know, it might even be better if you were able to do like a fictionalized version of it um, just because you could add all of these layers that, you know, you really never have a way of actually knowing.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's easy. I feel like the trap of nonfiction and like what's, great about it too is like all you can work with is what you have but it also feels like that almost is like lots of people do super interesting things with no information you know like lots of people can just write about an absence of information as much as it exists um like I don't know Jeff Dyer not that I'm anything close to Jeff Dyer but you know what I mean like Jeff Dyer does a great job of that or even like you know you think Jason Diamond. Jason instance. Diamond, for example, writing a great book about failure, uh, yeah, which is actually a success, which is, you know,
2: paradoxical, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Um, there are a lot of there. Are, you know, and but also it feels like fiction would remove a lot of the problems, um, including not deal, not like for like going to like group therapy with my family constantly in order to like actually, <laughs> but then it feels like the point of it would probably to be facing down those things and talking about those honestly. Um, um, plus I like have not written any good ever. I think the last attempt I made was maybe in high school and it was quite bad. It was like a time traveler in it. Um, who was maybe... <laughs> It was like a robot, but like maybe also a horse. I forget. It was not a success.
1: Well, yeah,
2: I might <laughs> read that.
1: Just on I, that log I, I like time travel quite a bit. Um, Margaret, where where can our listeners find you online?
0: So um, you can find me at Extra Crispy where I edit or on Twitter where I post weird things about fortune cookie dumpsters.
1: Um. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, and, you know, your book, South Toward Home, is available wherever books are sold?
0: It is indeed. It's in paperback now.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Thank you both. Um, I really appreciate it.
1: So that was Margaret Eby. Uh, you can find her online at Uh That's E B Y. the coolest last name I've ever heard. Uh, she is awesome. So thank you so much to Margaret. Uh, thank you to Jason Diamond and Will Scarlett as well, both friends of the show, uh, who, you know, really helped us out in getting Margaret on board. Uh, I've been reading her for years, so it was really exciting to actually sit down and have a conversation with her. Um, you can find Writers Who Don't Write at www.podcast.com. Um, and this week, I want to let you know about our Instagram account, which is www.pod. Uh, you should check it out. We have book uh, announcements, cool book images, book recommendations, book deals, you know, book everything. Uh, every day we post at least one new picture it's kind of a new thing that I started doing a few weeks ago because I got a new camera Um, and it is awesome Uh, you should check out
2: Jeff's hashtag game
1: it's on point it is so good Uh, but for real we only have like 60 followers and we could use your help But uh again you can find us at wwwpodcast.com. Uh, we want to thank My Lit Box this week for making this show possible. Don't forget 10% off your first box using www upon checkout. Uh and I want to thank bensound.com, uh a creative commons music outlet uh for providing the music um for My lip Box in the middle of the show. Uh he has a ton of other great stuff, uh great songs on his website that you should check out. Um, I also want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library, who's been a show a friend of the show from day one. Uh, he did the music at the top and the bottom of the show, uh, and every other show as well. And You can find his SoundCloud page at HP Public Library. Uh, he has an awesome CD and he's working on a new one right now, uh, so you guys should all you know, definitely have at it. Uh, and see you in two weeks.